You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined with my good and handsome good friend, Dr. Mark Kistler. The only reason why I said is I think you got a haircut. <laughs> you just called me right? my brother. <laughs> I did? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Sorry. Oftentimes when people say handsome, Mark just sort of comes out immediately. So it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> that is, uh, I have no idea why I just said that. That's no so worries. crazy. It's that short. It's you like twins. Yeah, did you get a haircut? I did. I did. Yeah, that was that's. He's been getting pretty good at pretty good at, you know, crafting <laughs> crafting the, the old too. hair up here. So it's she's it's yeah, she's going. awesome, man. She's yeah. she's got a second second gig with, yeah. once we get out of the pandemic. Well, that's Dr. Stephen Kissler. What we're hearing from right now, he's an epidemiologist at Harvard School of Public Health, and we've got lots to chat about beyond just haircuts. I got a haircut too. Right, you may not notice, Stephen, just because I'm losing so much hair. So you're probably thinking, it's just because you always different. look so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you, buddy. You're so so kind. So I got got a, got a Super Bowl haircut. Happy Super Bowl to every the to all of you. Maybe I should be maybe should ca- uh, make a caveat with that. Depends on what team you're going for. How happy you might be today. But I didn't know which team to root for. I, I was ambivalent. Chiefs, because of my sister and her family, are obsessed, and they're from KC, so I really want them to win. And I don't know. They're both they're both great teams. It was an awesome game. My boys, just like any reason to celebrate a holiday. So we had seven-layer dip. We had homemade pizza. We had chocolate fondue. So they were sugar high, and they were having a great time. And my sons are just to how ignorant they are of, of like basically football. Last year, they called it soccer. I was telling Stephen. This year, they kept calling it the football, which is good, football, but the football movie. So it shows you where their minds are at on a daily basis. So I'm like, it's not a movie. It's Fair not enough. a movie. And they kept asking me, well, who wins? Who wins? I'm like, I don't know. Just sit down and watch. And so, man. Okay. Well, we got so much to, to talk about. I have a whole litany list of things that I want to explore with Stephen. I have tons of questions for some odd reason this week. And then maybe if we get to it, I have a reflection just because man, last week's episode with Mark and Stephen kind of hit me in the gut at the end, just reflecting about the stress and just what's going on. And I realized I've been keeping my head so low, just kind of keeping, keeping to the grind, doing things, getting my work done. I guess I didn't really allow myself to feel that much. And I know I was stressed. And I know that I've been kind of a little overwhelmed and feeling a little like just unnerved a little bit. And so I I spent the whole week reflecting. I have some points. We'll see if we get there. But if you can, give us a review first and foremost. We love that. We love reading them. You can do that on Apple Podcasts and the link is in the show notes as well. You can donate to us to support us, to keep us, keep this going. You can do that at patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. As little as $5 a month really does help us keep this going for the long run or just a one-time payment, Venmo, PayPal, all in the show notes. I think it's all the bare necessities we need to get to. Let's start talking about all the fun things, Stephen. And some things are just not that fun. Uh, for for example, I heard this thing about we're in the eye of a hurricane. I'm like, oh man, every time I get these like metaphors, I get a little <laughs> unnerved. So I know we talked about this before, Stephen. Again, I'm not trying to have you play witchcraft or all this kind of stuff. I know it's hard to predict the future. I just keep seeing good news every day, every week, following the Hopkins tracker. And do you still feel we're now entering mid-February? And close to March, do you still feel like we could be in an eye of a hurricane and that we're going to hit another another kind of rev up, especially in light of what we were talking about, you know, just a couple minutes ago before we recorded? And that was the Super Bowl and how every big holiday oftentimes has an increase. And now we're on the heels of some variants, which make things even more complicated. What's your sense right now as of this Monday? 
Yeah. So, uh, I mean, taking a step back, actually, it's it's been really interesting to hear how all of the sort of narrative descriptions of this pandemic have changed over time. How, like, <laughs> I know, you know, totally. we've been like using all of these different ways of sort of trying to conceptualize like where we are and where we're going, mm-hmm. and it's just it's super interesting. And so, yeah, we had like first like the the main the main surge, and now there's like the flatten the curve, and then there's the multiple waves, <laughs> and then there's you know now there's the eye of the hurricane. And so, I, I, I yeah, I I would love to like do a retroactive study of these things once this is a little bit further (laughs) behind us. Yeah. So I think definitely the, like you say, it's hard to say what exactly is going to happen, but I can, I can refer back to some of the conversations we've had earlier about the spread of the variants in the UK. Now, one of the things why I distinguished the UK from where we were in the US is that it seems like in the UK, they had one of their variants spreading during the winter, right around when the holidays were happening. Now, we're fortunately a little bit later on in the year, but, but I had failed to anticipate the Super Bowl, which <laughs> which happened, you know, right right at a time when some of these variants are starting to dig their heels in here in the US. Mm. So, it's it's not totally clear to me what's going to happen. I mean, again, the good thing is that we're sort of starting to enter into February, March when coronavirus transmission usually isn't as high, so it might be a little bit harder to yeah. spread. But that said, I mean, it, after Thanksgiving and after Christmas, in various places, we did see surges of infections. And we've seen those in the US, we've seen those around the world. I expect we're probably going to see another bump after this weekend, because I know, I mean, a lot of people got together. And and also, you know, with cases coming down across the US, there's there was also sort of a, a higher sense of security in a way. So I think that some of the inhibitions that people may have had around the holidays might have started to come down because we've yeah. just been in this for so long, right? Like, it's just, yeah. I mean, I... <laughs> I, yeah, I would have loved to go to a Super Bowl party this weekend, you know, like that would, (laughs) you know, like that, that is just that, yeah. So, you know, it, it makes some sense to me, but, you know, I'm hoping my, my anticipation is still sort of what it was that we may still see a bump, but I think we're basically just going to see sort of a long, long tail, I think, across the United States with surges in various places. And I hope that that's, I hope that that's the case and that we don't end up really surging the other direction. So rather than being in the eye of the hurricane, we're just sort of like on a, on a locomotive that's just trying to slow itself down, you know? There we <laughs> go. So, Add that to the mix. Add that's that right. to the locomotive now. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. So that's, good. I, I'm glad you're yeah. You're going that way. And I just thinking about you, I'm like, of course you like to go to a Super Bowl game. Which last week of the sacrifice you has made, I'm like, man, you have been like, you know, I, I'm surprised you even had that much of a tan. I mean, you don't have one, but like, literally, like, I mean, I, you, I know you're in that apartment all the time and just natural light. And uh, I know you get out a little bit, but oh, yeah. I, we need to get you a ticket. The first time you can get out, we're going to get you a ticket to a fun game. You deserve it. Okay, well that's good to know. I'm I'm hopeful. I'm I'm feeling the same thing. Again, I'm not an expert, but I keep watching at least Colorado and you know having a little ups and bu- ups and downs, but still remaining steady like that locomotive and just we're just cruising with no big fears quite yet. So next topic I want to talk about. I am obsessed with the flu right now, and I this is the third time I've mentioned it. When I first kind of became aware of this two weeks ago. And I read another article uh, from The Atlantic that was really fascinating. I'm going to put this in the show notes, but I really want you to talk about this. And you just, you just told me you just wrote something up about this in a newspaper, which is great because I want to hear about the complexity of the flu. I'm guessing for you right now, as an epidemiologist and seeing what's happened with the flu, this is just kind of like a, a goldmine for you to figure out how it behaves, what's going on. You know, I'm hearing as, as extreme things like 20,000 flu tests, you know, being put, being 
being done and like no results coming out. I mean, it's like nearly non-existent. And so many other respiratory viruses are just not even showing themselves. And we've talked about it in the past, but how this is really, this is good news about what we're doing. But I kind of want to talk about just the complexity of what you're seeing of like, why is the flu behaving this way? And what does this mean for maybe the flu for next year as well? Yeah. So... It is super interesting. You know, there's there's a lot of a lot of information about this that we're going to be looking at as epidemiologists for a long time. So there are there are a couple of reasons why I think flu circulation seems to be down this year. And I think the first thing is that, you know, the uh, sort of the obvious one, which is that wearing masks and physical distancing and these kinds of things work like we talked about. And yep. seasonal flu is just less contagious. It's less transmissible than COVID. And it's it's less contagious, and not necessarily inherently, but we all have some amount of immunity built up to seasonal flu. And so that makes it yeah. practically less transmissible. The, the reproduction number is on the order of 1.1 to 1.5, whereas for COVID, it's in a, in a natural population, it's closer to three. Gosh, yeah. So yeah. COVID is on the order of twice as infectious as the flu. So if we bring COVID down yeah. to a place where it's just sort of like on the edge of its ability to spread, which is basically what we've done. If you if you look at the COVID reproduction number trackers in a lot of places, the reproduction number just hovers right around that threshold of one. Yeah. So anything that's yeah. less spreadable than COVID is going to be sort of pushed down as long as it spreads right. in, in sort of the same way. So I think, I think that's the main thing. So that's kind of cool. You yeah, know, like, so there are a couple of other ideas sort of being tossed around. I mean, one of the clear ones too is like, well, maybe people just aren't going to the doctor and getting themselves tested for flu like they normally do. And I think that there's something to that. But of course, we're also not seeing the severe flu cases. You know, if people are in the hospital with pneumonia, you're going to test to uh, see what they have. And sure. we would be picking up flu yeah. cases there as well, but we're not to nearly the same level we usually do. So that's another sort of piece of evidence that it's not just down to, you know, you don't find something you don't look for. Like we're, we're, we're looking for it. Like you said, like people are running tests yeah. for flu. We really want to know if yeah. it's there and it just doesn't seem to be. Many other respiratory viruses are this way as well. So RSV, uh, which is a childhood respiratory virus has been down across the board. And so now in the Southern hemisphere, the respiratory illness season is sort of opposite to ours up in the Northern hemisphere. Yeah. And in Australia, for example, their RSV season, which coincides with flu and coronavirus spread was really tamped down. But then once they lifted their lockdown, they had a later RSV season that sort of hopped up. Yeah. And so that's another little bit of evidence that physical distancing, these sorts of things are really affecting the spread of these respiratory viruses. Some people have also suggested that maybe there's something about the immune dynamics that basically once you've been infected with COVID, that that can give you some short-term immunity to other viruses. And that may be true. So in 2009, when the spread of the H1N1 flu pandemic was happening, the pandemic seems like it was able to also bump the RSV season a little bit later. And so we think there is some amount of sort of short-term immunity that, that some respiratory viruses can give you against others. Okay. But that's probably not enough to explain basically the complete absence of flu that we've been seeing yeah. this year. It could have sort of adjusted the timing of the flu outbreak, but it, it, it wouldn't have obliterated it entirely if that was the only thing that was going on. Yeah. So a lot of different ideas sort of being tossed around. But I think, I think the clearest and most consistent one with all the data we have available is just that masking and distancing has basically just wiped out the flu this year. Now, that's phenomenal. People aren't getting infected with the flu this year, which is a good thing. But then that also raises the question of, are we going to see flu yeah. spread this summer? Is it going to be worse next winter? Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe. I think it's less likely that we're going to see widespread flu transmission over the summer. But I do worry a little bit about next year. Next flu season could be, since we haven't really built up that level of underlying immunity, 
it'll spread yep. a little bit more easily. Our defenses won't be quite as high. And so we might well see a worse flu season next year than, than normal, partly due to the absence of flu this year. So I think it's something we're going to have yep. to pay attention to. Maybe another reason to start thinking about wearing masks during the flu season once in a while, you know, like to some extent, especially yeah. if you're feeling ill. So, Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, a couple of follow-up questions. The first one is, is it possible, that number one, that like a virus can bow to another virus? Like, you know, like, 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 okay, you're in, you're in the play, you're COVID, I'm kind of leaving for a little bit until we can work together better. Or in, in epidemiology, does that kind of reality work? Or because I'm trying to think, okay, there's the behavior changes, which we see. Is there anything else going on? You, you mentioned natural immunity. Is there anything within virus communication? I know it sounds weird. Like, is it like they're intelligent? Like, hey, Mr. Flu. Uh, yeah, you know, is there anything like that in epidemiology where one virus may bow to another temporarily and leave and then come back? Or is that not part of the uh, the equation in this? Yeah, that's interesting. It's usually, usually that doesn't happen for viruses that are very distantly related. So like between flu and coronavirus, that probably wouldn't happen. Sure. Between different okay. strains of coronavirus, absolutely. One strain can sort of get completely displaced by another one, yeah. but usually we don't see things quite to that extent okay. with 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 really distantly related viruses. Okay, great. And my other one question is about the you know could this be like another great benefit? And we talk about how okay we're doing all this research, we're in a pandemic, we have mRNA vaccines, we're preparing or we're preparing ourselves for the next pandemic. You know, could the next fall be one of those really awesome benefits? of the pandemic where with mRNA coming out with the vaccines and, you know, us delaying in some sense, having a flu season because of wearing masks and with potentially having a much worse flu season next fall, but at the same time having technology mRNA to be able to iterate so quickly, could this be one of the first fruits of a potential, you know, widespread, maybe I wouldn't say another pandemic, but a hard season being, being mitigated by being able to iterate so quickly with a vaccine that it specifically addresses the particular kind of flu strain that's going on. Is that a possibility? Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting idea. I think there's a huge amount of potential for using mRNA vaccines for other illnesses and potentially even for flu. I am, I would be surprised if we had an mRNA vaccine that was ready for next year's flu season, unfortunately, because okay. part of the reason is that it would have to go through the same series of testing that the COVID vaccine went through. And while we were able to do it for the COVID vaccine within a year, part of the reason we were able to do it so quickly was because to test a vaccine, you need there to be spread of the pathogen that you're <laughs> oh, testing man. against. So part of the reason okay. the COVID vaccine trials went so quickly was because they were really going into phase three, just as COVID was ramping up for its fall wave. Yeah. So they had a bunch okay. of data coming in. So actually the, the absence of flu in some ways makes it more difficult to test mRNA vaccines against flu because you can't find anybody who has the flu right now. Man, so that's going to be an interesting... Sucks. Yeah, I know. It's tricky. Yeah. But I think people are working on this, on mRNA type vaccines for all sorts of different things, including flu. So I don't know if we'll have them in time for next year, but but we're getting there. Okay. Well, okay. I, I was hoping for that. I mean, this would <laughs> yeah. be a big bang. But again, like like the season of all of our episodes, it's complicated and it's okay. So... 
Okay. Another thing I want to chat about is just briefly mentioning about masks. We mentioned it last week, a couple weeks ago, about the difference between N95 masks, KN95 masks. I'm not going to go over that again, but I'm just going to mention a couple of things. I'm going to put a great article from CNET, of all places, about different kinds of, of masks and, and how to kind of find the right mask. So look in the show notes for that to help you find. My question to you is, it's been a lot of... Oh, there's been a lot of information about mask wearing and now this kind of push for double masking. Is that, I just want to get your input on what you think about that. Cause it's, 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 it's starting to have its manifestation. We're seeing it around here, people double masking. Is that something you would advocate as well? Or is that too much or what, you know, what's kind of behind that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, I think it's not a bad idea. It's not something I've been doing, but again, I'm also not generally in places where, I don't spend long periods of time usually indoors in places where there are lots of other people who might be unmasked, for example. <laughs> yeah, sure. And so I think that like, for example, if I were if I were working in a restaurant, for example, or if I were in a public facing business where I had lots of different people coming in, that sort of thing. Absolutely. I'd consider wearing two masks. I think, I mean, I think that well, one of the things that I wish we would have been doing from a, a long time ago is providing people in front facing businesses with the same protective equipment that people in hospitals have, sure. we we should be supplying them with N95s yeah. and it shouldn't be up to them to yeah. get them really. You yeah. know, that should be like provided by their employers. It should be subsidized by the government. And, and I think that that would go a long way towards preventing spread. But now we're sort of in this place where we're trying to find stopgap solutions. And I think two masks can help yeah. there. But the thing, the thing that I've really been trying to emphasize to the people I've been speaking about with this is that it's much better to have one mask that fits well than two masks that fit poorly. So really one of the key things about wearing two masks is that hopefully, you know, the, the mask that's closest to your face, maybe if it's like a surgical mask, for example, those can form really well to your face. And one of the biggest issues mm -hmm. with wearing masks, one of the reasons why they fail to be helpful most of the time is because they're not being worn correctly because there's spaces where air can get out and, or maybe you're not even wearing them over your nose anyway, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's so yeah. two masks right. over your face, but like over your mouth, but not over your nose is not, <laughs> nose, like, not right. effective. So I think that, you know, great, you know, absolutely wearing two masks, extra layers of protection, especially if you're wearing them well. But the thing that I would really try to get people to think about is just make sure you're wearing your masks well and make sure you have a mask that fits well. And I think that that will, that's really the thing that we should, that we should be focusing on right now. Okay, great. Yeah. I feel the same way. I mean, there's been a lot of some backlash about double masking and that's, but yeah, I think still the PSA is just, just wear a good mask, wear it well. And I get it, man. I just, I'll, I'll report back in a week, but I got some anti-fog spray because that's that's the perennial problem for me wearing glasses of like yeah. I just don't want to wear masks. I still wear them, but like sometimes I can't even see where I'm going. I got so much, so much fog in my glasses. But I'll I'll check back to see how the, how well that works for me if it's a, if it's a good solution. Now here's another thing. I'm surprised this Stephen. I came in. I saw this article. Was it yesterday or maybe a couple of days ago? But Biden, President Biden, was talking about school closures and talking about this is a national emergency that we got to open up schools safely. And then he mentioned somewhat casually. That as early as this Wednesday, the CDC may come out with requirements for opening safely. And my jaw kind of dropped, metaphorically speaking, because I was like, oh, we we haven't done this yet. And so I just wanted to check back. Is this something that we haven't even done with the CDC yet? Or is this our first time coming out with some some guidelines for schools? Yep. <laughs> oh my god! Which is, Look. I mean, there there have been some rough guidelines provided, but this has been one area that has been frustratingly unclear, yeah. and and I think a lot of that, I mean, it's it's hard to point to exactly why, but I do know. So our 
roommate Ellen here has been working on basically providing this because she and her huh. colleagues recognized that the government really wasn't providing any guidance. National government, state government, basically nobody had any clear guidance for what schools needed to do to reopen safely. And so, you know, properly that should be the role of health agencies and these sorts of things, but it just wasn't available. And there were a lot of superintendents and administrators and teachers who were just confused as to what to do. And so she's been working with a group called PanFab, which has a whole bunch of different things going on, but they basically have a small group of well-meaning scientists who have been looking through the COVID guidelines and speaking with epidemiologists and trying to figure out like what they can do to help schools give these guidelines to reopen. Which again, is properly the job of the government, but in the meantime, has sort of been taken up by sort of these well-meaning groups of people to try to help schools understand what they need to do to reopen safely. So it's been happening, but it hasn't really been happening from governmental agencies on the level that it should have, from my opinion. And so I think that yeah. it's I would have hoped that these sorts of things would have come out sooner, for sure, but I'm glad they're coming out now in time, really, for the at least the uh, yeah. the spring semester or, you know. And so it's, I think it's good. Now, now the CDC, of course, is a regulatory agency. They they don't have the power to make requirements in okay. really any way. They, they provide information yeah. and they provide guidelines that states and local jurisdictions are free to take up or to ignore. So whatever's being posted by the CDC is is guidelines and are things that schools can and I mean I I would generally recommend following largely but also there's there's a huge 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 diversity of the different needs and the different people yeah. who are involved in different school districts the different resources available and so absolutely school districts will have to be creative in how they how they do that and which sorts of things they find they're able to achieve and which they aren't in the meantime, there are groups like this one that Ellen has been involved in who who have been really doing active outreach to schools and trying to provide living, breathing people who people who are yeah. involved in making these decisions can speak with. And so if if any of you out there are involved in making these sorts of decisions for school districts and are trying to wade through all of the evidence um, that's out there, feel free to get in contact with me. <laughs> I can help Great. sort of direct to some of the information that's out there. And then, yeah, and hopefully in time, that evidence base sort of provided by the centralized agencies will grow and grow and make schools safer on the whole. That's great. And now, could you, does the PanFab have a website? Yeah, it does. I, I can track it down for you and we'll put it in the show yeah. notes. Yeah, we'll put in the show notes. Yeah. Good. I, when it said PanFab, it's like, all I can think of is like Pandemic Fabulous. I'm like, yeah, well, seems, hey, that works. <laughs> <laughs> that works. I'm like, seems a little weird. But okay, great. He'll, he'll, he, uh, Stephen will give us a link to put in the show notes. If you want for more, more information, feel free. For now, go to matt at livingthereal.com, email me. I'll forward that on to Stephen and you guys can get connected to get any information if you make those kind of decisions on behalf of schools. Okay, so let's get into the vaccines, because there is a lot of stuff that I'm talking about the vaccines. There are some things I'm kind of mulling over my head. Things are getting complicated for me. The The first thing I just want to review again is this whole g genetic testing and what's going on update. I read another great article from The Guardian about this, about how we rank like 30th in the world for genetic test testing, which is just mind boggling to me, Steve. I mean, we're like on the cutting edge of technology. We're like kind of the forefront. We're pioneers. And, and maybe you can help unfold the complexity of this. I feel like we have technology, but I feel like we're not using it. And I don't know why we're not using it, how we got to this point. There was one small sentence that was said in this and maybe just kind of infer the, the, the reason. And they said that the U.S. offered uh, its scientists no such budget and coordination. So is this simply just a money issue? 
that the government didn't fund it well enough and that things like Portugal, of all places, are better than us in genetic surveillance because they had funding for it. Can you help me parse where we, how we got in this position? Yeah, I mean, so I'm... I'm not a genetic epidemiologist as as much as a population level one, but I do have many colleagues who are sort of working in this space. So I can give sort of my impressions as to what's going on, okay. even though I my expertise is not precisely in this area. But it seems to me like there's there's as you say, there there are budgetary issues for sure, and that oftentimes, you know, resources arise where where funding is made available. And I think that it just hasn't really been as much of a priority for whatever reason. And I don't I don't totally know why. I think that there just hasn't been a clear and present, or for the, for the ones who are making the funding decisions, there hasn't been a clear and present need for this sort of thing. It is kind of a, a complex thing to communicate that like sequencing the genomes of viruses can tell you what? Well, it can tell you all sorts of things. It can tell you where the virus emerged. It can tell you how much is circulating. It can give you a sense of how many people are infected at any given time. It can help you monitor for variants. It can you know do all sorts of things, but mm-hmm. but it it takes a fair amount of of communication and background knowledge to really understand like what that link is and just how crucial this information can be. And so I think that for some of those reasons it, that money has just been sort of prioritized elsewhere. Furthermore, you know, the United States is just a funny country because it it just of the way that it's structured, right? It's like and, and this is part of the beauty of the US, which is that it is we have these grassroots systems and things that are growing up all over the place and there's a lot of sort of local innovation and different states have jurisdiction over what they're doing and different hospitals sort of have their own ways of genome sequencing. And and so you end up having all of these different sorts of platforms arising and different people sort of working on this problem independently, but there's not necessarily this very centralized coordination that you can have in other countries with other sorts of just sort of social structures in place. And that makes it very difficult because to to get the maximal benefit out of the genome sequencing of pathogens that we're doing, you really need everybody to be using similar platforms so that all of the sequencing can sort of be integrated with each other. And you need them sort of reporting to the same repository, using the same metadata, metadata being the sorts of information that you include about the genome sequences that you're sequencing. And so all of this information can be standardized much more easily in other places than it can be in the United States, just by virtue of sort of how how our country has has evolved in a way, how it socially has yeah. evolved. And so so there are big barriers in place that make it really difficult to achieve this on the same level that other countries have been able to. Now, I think that with this pandemic, it has really driven home the importance of this kind of information. And I think that we're going to move that direction. But it it takes some time to really build up that infrastructure, to train people who are able to use it well. And we're getting there. But it's going to be slow going, and we we won't we won't have it next week, unfortunately. Yeah, well, yeah, totally. And I, and I think you hit a great a couple a couple really great points. And the reason why I wanted to ask, well, I didn't even know the reason why I wanted to ask this. I honestly was just confused. I didn't really know why we weren't we're having this kind of availability of genetic research. And I've I've heard a lot of times who's at blame, who's at fault, and putting all of this lump on the previous administration, the presidential administration, for not funding it, which. I get it. I could totally see that that is part of the problem. But I also think, again, like most things, there's a level of complexity and that our very fabric by which we are, we are fabricated creates this difficult problem, you know? And so all the more reason why we need to... So going back to good old social justice 
ideologies of the principle of solidarity and the principle of subsidiarity, which sounds all technical, just basically to what extent do we fight for a common end? And then to what extent do we relinquish some of those common ends for to preserve individual rights? And it's always a complicated thing. And we go back and forth and we're seeing the ramifications of this right now, where when we, when we have a really strong uphold and love for individual rights, which is wonderful, some of the collateral damage is this, right? A lack of coordinated standardization efforts that we need to reevaluate and move forward, which I think is that kind of what you were saying, Stephen, is that's yep. part of the nego- renegotiation problem. Right. right, totally. So I love it. I love it. Okay, continue down along the line of the vaccines. We've realized here for a while now that here, particularly in and all over the world, that the vaccine rollout has been in disarray. Good news, though, that we th- the, all 32 stadiums, uh, NFL stadiums, have been, been, have been offered to uh, the government, basically, to be used as huge vac- vaccination sites to, to help expedite and increase the level of vaccinations to people. So I'm super excited about that. I saw Dr. Fauci, a couple of updates, uh, the danger of thinking that because you're immune, that you do not need to get uh, a vaccination, that encouraging those, even if you have had COVID before, to still get them. So we don't know, right, how long the immunity lasts. We saw with Pfizer, uh, you, Stephen, you were talking about this a couple weeks ago, about how effective it is. And it's, it's, it's remarkably more effective than natural immunity. So that even if you have been infected, encouraged that if you're in, if you're in that tier, right, to, to, to be vaccinated. Now, I want to stop here with Johnson & Johnson. We didn't talk about this last week. We didn't get into it. So we never even mentioned that Johnson & Johnson is a new vaccine that's been approved. Now, it comes with a 66% effective vac- vaccination rate. So that's going to scare a lot of people. And they're like, ah, oh, man, I want to get in. I want to get Moderna. I want to get Pfizer. I want to throw it back to you, Stephen, just briefly about, is this something we should just like try to get uh, a Pfizer or Moderna? Or what does the 66% mean? And how is it still really effective for us, even if we get this one? Yeah, so the the Johnson and Johnson vaccine has a couple of advantages. So as you say, it's that sort of like bottom line efficacy number is about sixty six percent, but it seems yeah. to be just as effective in reducing hospitalizations and deaths as um, yeah. Pfizer and Moderna. And so I think that's really the key because that's that, yep. I mean that's, that's really what we're trying to avoid here. And so <laughs> yeah. so that's that's good. And I think that you know it's it's still a very good vaccine and is is one that seems to be very effective at reducing the severe outcomes which is kind of what we're after of course the other thing about it is that it is i think it's a one shot vaccine instead of two so it yeah. makes it a lot logistically easier it can be stored in standard refrigerators and so that makes it the the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is I mean, it's a good overall vaccine for sure and I think the the greatest benefit of it is that it it just opens up places to vaccination that couldn't get it otherwise, either due to barriers of money or storage or just the logistics of getting people in for two shots. Like the fact that we have a vaccine that is that effective, that is that much cheaper and that much easier to administer is is game changing. Because, you know, the the thing is like, absolutely like, I want a vaccine. We all all want a vaccine to protect ourselves, right? But we're not going to be out of this until we have like a high level of vaccine coverage around the world, like everywhere, you know? Yeah. And so that's, yeah. that's that the, the real value of, of all of these vaccines and especially having multiple is that now we can, yeah, get vaccines to places that it would be harder to get them to sure. if they needed the sorts of technology and infrastructure that the RNA vaccines do. So it's sort of this twofold approach of both getting, getting every individual person vaccinated, but also getting enough of the population vaccinated that uh, we can really reduce the spread of COVID overall. That's great. And just to really reiterate, when when Stephen was saying that even though the 66% effective, 
from what I've read, it is a hundred percent effective from death. Like there has been no recording and, and, and really, really effective against hospitalization. Right. So it's so important to realize that in the, and that's, that's where we're going for. I'm like, I don't care if I get sniffles. Like, that's fine. I don't care if I feel bad for a week. I just don't want to die. That's, 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 that's <laughs> what I'm trying to, that's what I'm trying to, and all of these across the board prevent us. So it doesn't matter. Now I get there's ethical issues. I'm not going to get into with Johnson and Johnson versus Pfizer. That's a whole other area of discourse and really valid and really good. But for now that, you know, it's really good to hear that, that, doesn't matter what you get. It prevents from what we don't want to have, and that is uh, death. But now let's get into the complexity, the nuance of this. Because first of all, like that's great. I'm on board. I'll take anything. But then we have this stupid thing called variant, Stephen, and they get and it makes everything much more complicated. So to throw a wrench in. I need you to respond back to this. So Moderna, right, says Moderna's vaccine works against the new COVID nineteen strains. We heard the same thing for Pfizer. Not so with AstraZeneca. So this now this all of a sudden now I'm, I'm I'm taking a step back and in my mind my little feeble mind Stephen I'm trying to think what should I be doing here because my question is the AstraZeneca is reported to offer minimal protection against the South African variant so I'm thinking in my mind okay well then maybe it's this whole RNA thing this the 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 that one is so good it's able to just hit everything so I really want to get that as an insurance policy for future variants. Is it the type of vaccine that, that might make some vaccines better and that this mRNA is just so good? It's like the X-Men of, <laughs> of, 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 of vaccinations. So what, in light of this, what should we be doing with, with, with our decision-making with vaccines? Help us out with that. Yeah, so with the with the AstraZeneca vaccine, I think there's there's something that we still need to continue to watch with it because and I need to I need to get myself updated on this as well, but from what I from what I saw, it said that the the efficacy was very low against mild and moderate illness and I think maybe even severe illness, mm-hmm. but that was still not talking about hospitalization or death. And so uh, okay. it may well still be effective at preventing those for the South Africa variant, but it does seem to be quite a bit less okay. effective at preventing the the less severe stages of illness. But we don't know yet. You know, it, it may the the variant might have sort of sidestepped all of that. And it could be, you know, could have basically evaded this vaccine. Now, yep. are different types of vaccines better than others? It's it's hard to say, I mean especially because we've only had mRNA vaccines for <laughs> two months or so. And it's, of course, an interaction between the vaccine and the pathogen, too. So just because the mRNA vaccines have been very good for COVID so far, there's no guarantee that they will be that way for other pathogens either. That said, I think that from what I know about the vaccines, there's no reason that any one platform would necessarily be better than any other okay. in terms of a uh, virus evolving around it. Okay. Other than the fact that you can update mRNA vaccines very quickly, so you can stay on top of the sure. pathogens very well. But I think that in terms of just having a vaccine that basically you can't evolve resistance around, I, I don't think we know how to do that yet. Okay. And so that's one of the things that we'll have to keep paying attention to. I think we could get lulled into a false sense of security that the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are sort of impervious to these kinds of things. But I think it's just one of those not yet things that I think okay. that it's it, okay. absolutely COVID could still generate mutations that escape that immunity as well. We know okay. that I think it was the South Africa variant yields slightly reduced effectiveness for the Moderna vaccine. Yep. So we know that it can at least take one step in that direction. So if that can happen, there's, I, I think that it could, you know, happen all the way if it 
if it needed to. So really what I think this is all underlining is that, you know, again, vaccines are really important tools, but we, we got to do everything we can to bring cases down because the more virus that's circulating, the more chances it has to evolve around the vaccines. So that's why we need rapid tests that we, that's why we need to continue physical distancing that, you know, all of this stuff is so important and vaccines are just one really important tool. But if we want the vaccines to stay effective, all these other things still matter too. Great. Great. So the moral of the story, the conclusion is when you're you're up, get the vaccine that's available. And here's the other complexity of things. I saw another article. We talked about this before, Stephen, just about how now there's research being done as of recently now that we have probably four or five different kind of vaccines of the efficacy of giving one shot for the first dose and then to get a whole different shot for your second dose, whether you get a, a Pfizer one for your first dose and then a Johnson & Johnson one for your second dose. I have no idea how they're going to do this. But have you heard anything updates on that at all? I just read that just this morning of some research being done. Any discussion among colleagues about that stuff? Yeah, I I don't have any new information on that. I, I imagine some of the research okay. is being done, but right now, absolutely, the recommendation is to get the same same shot for both because that's the only yep. thing that's been studied so far. Yep, absolutely. Great. couple things just to, to, before we move on. Moderna's, Moderna asked FDA to allow five extra doses per COVID vaccine vial. I have no idea what that means, Stephen, but it must mean like you can squeeze out more stuff out of a vial and get more dosage. Yeah. I mean, I think that it would help with storage. You can store more in one fridge, hopefully reduce costs of transport, of storage, of just the vials themselves. We're producing so many vaccines right now that even the little glass vials, you know, there there could be like supply chain shortages for for things like that. (laughs) No, we're not at that point yet. But but I think, you know, anything we can do to make that process a little bit more efficient, it's a good thing. Yeah. All right. So you're looking for a new small business, everyone. Go to the small glass vial business and start making them because you could make a, make a, make some money off that one. Pfizer Pfizer ex- expects to cut COVID-19 vaccine production time by almost 50%. So that's huge, great news, by the way, just to know that uh, almost doubling the amount of uh, vaccine that can be produced by Pfizer coming out really soon. We talked about the mixing dosages. It's going to throw you a random question. Any updates on Sputnik 5? <laughs> we talked about it. We, yeah, we talked about ago. it like months ago. And I, here's my question, Steve. I'm just wondering, do you imagine that, well, do you think Sputnik 5 would ever be distributed outside of Russia? Or is it even, is it, is it going to be clamoring for it right now? Or do you, is it not even talked about? Yeah. You know, I think, I think it actually has been administered okay. somewhere outside of Russia, but I don't remember where. I don't have many updates. I think that it finally got through its <laughs> no, like sure. equivalent of our state, our phase three trials. It seems okay. to be pretty effective as well Great. and relatively safe. So I, I think that that's, that's a good thing, but yeah, it's, you're right. It's, we sort of heard about it ages ago and then it's like, Oh, what happened? But yeah, but it's, it, they're still using it. So. Okay. Great. One thing before I get in my, my quick reflection, love to do it, but uh, Stephen, have you heard about this? I, re- I read this like the other day and this was again about the, the MRNA future and that potentially a vaccine through MRNA for, for MS have you, have you, yeah, so they've been using about mRNA that? vaccines. Well, they haven't been using them yet, but the mRNA is really interesting because there are all sorts of different health issues that, that can be helped by producing the right kinds of proteins in your body, basically. And mRNA is the language that tells your body what proteins to produce. And so by injecting, mRNA, just like we're doing for these vaccines, you can 
in theory, produce those proteins. And, and it, that can help to address a whole host of different types of medical conditions that aren't just infectious disease-related conditions. So that's something people are working on quite a bit. Now, one of the reasons why we have mRNA vaccines for infectious diseases, but not other things, is because for many of these other diseases, you need to be able to keep producing those proteins at a high level for long periods of time, which would require sort of consistent doses of mRNA because your body isn't producing that mRNA itself. With infectious diseases, mm -hmm. you just need one little shot of mRNA and your body goes haywire and it like figures out, you know, what, what sorts of antibodies do we need to produce? And then it's the antibodies that give you the immunity for the future. So the mRNA just Got needs it. you to provide you with that template and then your body does the rest. So there's mm -hmm. a big gap still between using mRNA for dealing with infectious diseases and using mRNA for some of these other diseases as well. But there's a lot of research going into it, and that, and that research goes back for many years. And so there are still a lot of challenges to figure out sort of how to, how to give people enough mRNA to make these proteins, how to deliver it to the right places in the body, uh, because it needs to be produced by the right cells, and those proteins need to be taken up by the right cells. There's, there's a ton, a ton, a ton of challenges with this. But it's, it's a really interesting therapeutic idea, and it's something that I think with the COVID vaccine research, there's been a lot more interest, hopefully a lot more funding yeah. that will sort of help bring some yeah. of these things a little bit further along. So I think we're still a ways okay. off from that kind of thing, but sure. super cool. Yeah. Super fun, fun future ideas about all the technologies being developed around the pandemic. Okay. Well, that's reached all my questions. I want to end on this quick reflection that we were talking last week about Hugh and I and Mark about the struggles and just the craziness of life. And I, I realized, I think I was, I was numbing out and I wasn't really thinking. And then Mark and you guys' reflections made me really think about, and I was reflecting back, okay, so seeing just the complexity of the conspiracy theories, along with the enormous psychological toll that is placed on so many people, the suicide rates, domestic violence, depression, panic disorders, the financial destruction of so many people, the medical toll on people not wanting to go to the doctor. So all these things, children not being able to go to school, maintain social ties, the racial and gender disparities, you know, seeing an article just recently about, you know, women taking the blunt of the pandemic by being forced to pick their career over, over childcare. And the, so just, just all this stuff that I think is just good to again, acknowledge publicly. This is not a simple fix. It's not just about lockdowns and keeping COVID away from everyone at all costs. And Stevens never advocated that we've never advocated. It's always the nuanced approach of trying to do both. But just realize feeling in this middle ground has been really like a struggle because yeah. I feel judged. I feel like, okay, I'm picking one side or another, you know, by, by, by advocating stronger measures for reducing numbers of COVID that I'm just allowing people to commit suicide. And, and so you're, I just deal, I, I can only imagine what you're feeling, Stephen, but I feel it on, even on, on my own level. And I've just been reflecting, this is, this is part of why I've been even, I'm an introvert, but I've been even more introverted <laughs> lately. I'm just like, I'm going to keep to my own bubble. I'm just going to like, I feel a little bit of guilt and I don't know why I feel guilt because, and then all of a sudden I remembered of a story. Now I won't keep this this long, but about 15 years ago, one of my best friends died on Mount Ontario in Colorado. His name was Tiffany. And at the time I was, I was going to give me my MA and I was at the time studying, for those of you who aren't Christian, I was studying like the providence of God. And so this, this complex reality of like predestination and free will, do you know, does God just dictate everything and you have no choice or do you have complete free will? And I remember being, having a Catholic past, holding this middle ground of both and of like, ah, you know, it's, it's kind of the both and sharing that both and approach to her twin sister who was like struggling and really, and it was that holding that 
complex reality of both and that bring me they bring me consolation they bring hope to other people and it wasn't because i was like trying to hold to some ideological unrealistic tenet i was really holding something that i believed to be really really true and it brought me a great sense of consolation and it really brought a lot of people around and together during a hard time of my best friend and her twin sister's death so what does that have to say about what what's going on right now i feel like that's kind of what's going on right now there's like two tenets i'm hold, just like in the same way with tiffany there was a couple tenets i was holding on to to bring consolation understand why this happened understand why the purpose of this how we can find hope in this and 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 kind of find healing and the same thing for there's like two great tenets i hold on to that make me realize that no, holding this middle ground is the most important thing. And, the, and, and, and this is one reason why I mentioned the flu thing, Stephen, because I'm like, that's really, I hold on to like seeing how much the flu has gone down. Could you imagine what it'd been if we didn't mask, if we didn't do these things, how many more deaths, how many more suicides because of just of, of the fear of going outside. And then the other big tenant was way back in March. And the reason why I share this, because for me, I have to hold on to a couple anchors to make me realize, okay, I'm on the right path. Right. And of course I have to adjust and shift if new information comes along, but way back in March, we saw those things, the, the information from what was it? Open table about how, you know, a couple of weeks before the pandemic that people stopped going to restaurants before the, before the lockdowns even happened, showing that it wasn't necessarily the lockdown. It's the complexity of the situation, of the fear of what's real, what's going on. And I just share this with you guys because I need a couple things in my life to anchor me of what's true and what's real. And going on one way, one extreme or the other, those aren't the real approaches. The real one is holding this really strong middle ground. And the difference is, for me, has been with Tiffany, with that death, it brought an increased sense of solidarity and closeness to people around me. Unfortunately, it, this both in has made me feel more alone, you know, and, 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 and I'm not, in, you know, not sure quite why. And, and the one thing I've learned about this is sometimes as I was wearing my own head, like I'm always kind of every person I talk to, they'll mention something about COVID and I'll go, oh yeah, but not really. Oh yeah, but not really. You know, there's always a nuanced approach. And so I'm constantly not in the circle of where we all agree on one thing. And this is this is the complexity of it because not only is there truth, which is the both and approach, I also have to be considerate of how I approach things. And I've realized I'm wondering in my head, you know, I was wondering in my head, like, am I just being like a maverick that I just want to be that person who like, oh yeah, but not but not really, you idiot. You know, like <laughs> this is how you really see things. Am I being that person or am I actually trying to hold on to truth with sincerity? And I realize, okay, I'm really struggling to hold the middle ground of both and and feel okay with it and not feel guilty with one way or another. And I feel like that part is true. The one thing I've realized, Stephen, is that how I do it needs to be modified because how I do it oftentimes brings people further away from me. And, and just an encouragement, it's just hard because when you're passionate about something, you, you can get a little emotional and it brings a bigger wedge in people's life. It doesn't mean that what you say and what you're doing is not true. It's just the approach is unreasonable and needs to be done with charity and sincerity to bring people together. I don't know if this provides value to anyone who's listening, but this is the complexity that I'm dealing with, realizing that both and can be lonely and you need to hold on to the couple tenets that show that this is the truth of what we need to hold on to. And by really advocating every week about the pandemic and measures that we need to take does not mean we're relegating all the other things to the backseat, the suicides, the depression, women being forced out of their careers because they have to take care of young children. That has nothing to do with that. It's that hard and difficult ground of both and, and seeing casualties on both sides, right? right. But still doing the best to hold up, hold the common good.
that's good stuff. My two cents. Any reflect? Any, any 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 anecdotes? No, I, on your end, I think that's great. I think there's, you know, what that made me think of was the. I watched this great video, this conversation about civil discourse that was that was hosted by St. <laughs> Tom's up in Boulder, and it was great because sure. this this great scholar. What what it, what really spoke to me about what you were saying, and the entire conversation is really worth listening to. But one of the things that really struck me was just the bearing of Cornell West and how he would always sort of compliment and affirm the other person who he was speaking with before he ever said anything about his own, you know, no matter who it was, no matter what the question was like, he would always like say, you know, like that was, you know, that was really insightful. And I learned something from what you just said. I really appreciate what you had to say. And here's, here, here's what I have to respond. And I think that was really powerful to me because I think it can be so easy to you know, I I also really try to grapple with the truth and, and want to make sure that I'm grappling with the truth in community as well. But I think that too narrow of a focus on 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 just getting towards the right answer can can make us forget the people that we're trying to get to the right answer with, and can make those conversations yeah. really jagged and harsh and difficult in ways that they don't need to be. And I think really maintaining that proper ordering of you know the really the ultimate end are our people, right? And that's everything we're talking about. You know, we're trying to make sure that people stay alive and healthy from COVID. We're trying to make sure that they stay, you know, mentally and spiritually well throughout all of this. And, and that's the goal. And we're trying to do that on a societal level. And we're also trying to do that within our individual communities with the people we interact with every day. And so there's a certain, you know, I, and I, I'm accusing myself of this, there's a certain hypocrisy that can come with, you know, really trying to get these societal problems worked out, but then forgetting that, you know, we're speaking with another human being who also, you know, has yeah. had a really rough day and is struggling with their own mental and spiritual and physical problems. And if we don't attend to those first, we can never attend to the broader societal problems. So I've been thinking a lot about those things too, and I appreciate you sharing that. And so, yeah, I think I've been trying to communicate with people here, you know, with you too, about just like how to achieve that in our lives, because I think it's so important right now. That's great. Thanks for so so much for saying, Stephen. I'll put that in the show notes. It was a great conversation. It really did change the way I think about things and it was phenomenal. So you have to watch it. I'll put it in the show notes. And I think you just hit a, hit a good point. Like the, before we talk about what divides us, and this comes from the actual debate, uh, or not the, it was a debate, it was a conversation. We have to really strive what connects us. And that's the first thing. Like even Cornell West, the very end, was just talking about like, come on, you, you can find something that you guys both have in common. Do you guys have a mama? <laughs> Do you guys have a mama who loves you, right? Start there, right? Whatever it is, find that commonality and start with that bridge and build upon that. And I encourage everyone who's listening to the same thing to not start with the polemics, but start with the connection. Because more than anything, we're all starved for connection already. And so we don't need more polemics. Now we do need truth. We need to talk and dialogue, but let's start with pursuing discovering what brings us together. So we get rid of the tribal mentality of like me against you, but that we're both in for the same and same common goal. Steven, you just nailed it. We're here to support and love and bring people together and keep them healthy. So let's end on that note. Find, discover the gift and the other person before you, what, what puts, what brings you and brings you in common with another before you talk about what divides you. And then you can bring that truth with charity and love and compassion. Okay. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Monday. Take care and bye-bye.